All right, y'all, welcome to the Scott Horton Show. I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute, editorial director of Antiwar.com, author of the book Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and the brand new Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And I've recorded more than 5,500 interviews since 2003, almost all on foreign policy and all available for you at scotthorton.org. You can sign up for the podcast feed there. And the full interview archive is also available at youtube.com slash Scott Horton Show. Hey, you guys, Daniel Larison has a sub stack and he also writes at Responsible Statecraft. This one is called Biden's Iran Policy Makes No Sense. Italics mine. Well, welcome to the show, Daniel. How you doing, bud? Uh, doing all right, Scott. Thanks. Thanks for having me back on. Uh, very happy to have you here. So, um, well, Biden, Iran, and policy, I don't like where this is going at all. I guess uh, the deal is that Obama had made the Iran deal, the JCPOA, the extra layer of inspections and reassurances on Iran's civilian nuclear program. Then Trump got us out of it in 2018. Then Biden became president in 2021. And the idea was that maybe he would get us back into the deal that, after all, his staff had signed. Uh, it was, you know, Blinken and Sullivan had both helped with the Iran deal back when it was the Iran deal. Uh, but then now here we are in March of 2023, and that has not been done. And um, you seem to think things are getting even worse here. Is that right? Uh, yeah, well, it, it's not looking good right now. Uh, we, we keep hearing, especially from uh, the U.S. ambassador to Israel, Tom Nides, uh, a lot of talk about uh, backing Israel to the hilt, uh, essentially green lighting whatever it is they want to do about iran's nuclear program uh and, and basically giving very strong indications that we're not going to do anything to get in their way if they decide they want to go off and and start bombing iranian facilities and and he said it one time uh, last month and that was worrisome enough and then he repeated it again at another event uh i think just last week and uh, and then he he also paired that with remarks that he made, and, and this is what I was talking about in the column, uh, that basically there there's no point in negotiating with Iran, or there's there's simply not going to be any negotiations with Iran while they're doing other things that the U.S. disapproves of. So whether it's cracking down on protesters or providing weapons to the Russians or or what have you, and so that it's essentially linking the fate of the these negotiations to other things that Iran may be doing in the world uh, that have nothing to do with the nuclear program, nothing to do with the nuclear issue at all, uh, but which are, I guess, politically embarrassing or, or potentially embarrassing for the administration if they go ahead with diplomacy with Iran uh, while those other things are going on. Yeah. And, and so I was I was uh, saying that the policy doesn't make any sense because, for one thing, a diplomatic path is the best and really only way to constrain the nuclear program in Iran uh, if if that is in fact what you want to do, you have to keep pressing ahead with the diplomatic path because all of the other alternatives can't work. And, and indeed, we've already seen how sanctions and sabotage actually backfire and produce more of what people say they don't want, uh, as Iran's nuclear program has only expanded in response to those things. So, uh, so if Biden and his people really do want to get the U.S. back into the deal, and they do want to keep Iran's nuclear program under limits and 
presumably they don't they don't really want a new war. You would think they wouldn't want a new war. That that can't be very popular uh, if they were to get us into a into a war uh, in the Middle East. Then it, it stands to reason that they they shouldn't be doing what they're doing, which is constantly reassuring the Israelis and giving them green lights and and encouraging them uh, to take whatever action they see fit. And so I was in, in the column. I was spelling this out and trying to to urge the, the administration, not that anybody in the administration is listening to me, but but to, to say that we need to be going in the opposite direction of where we're going. We need to be actively discouraging the Israelis from taking any actions, and we need to be moving away from this talk of military options, because we know that those options are bankrupt. We know those options are going to backfire, just like all of the other hawkish options have backfired. So uh, I'm concerned about this, this drift that we're seeing towards conflict uh, and, and the, the failure to rein in the Israelis when, when that's what needs to be happening. Yeah. Well, so get back to the Israelis in just a second, but um, it really is, you know, a huge part of this, as you say, is just domestic politics, like even on the surface level kind of TV politics, the embarrassment of making a deal when America's so powerful and the Ayatollah's so evil and our Israeli friends hate him so much. That's always part of it. And and so it, someone is going to call them a wimp for making a deal with a guy who's a bad guy who, after all, did that other bad thing that we're upset about. And they're not willing to take that hit in terms of just political capital on the most crass sense, the way that Obama was willing to fight for it back then, right? Seems to be the case. The, the One of the things that I, I, I've been banging this drum now for over two years is that Biden seems very wary of provoking hawkish backlash. He, he will go out of his way not to invite that kind of opposition. He, he caters to domestic hawks both within his party and, and outside it. Uh, and we, we've seen this on other issues too. It's not just the, the Iranian one. Uh, he'll, he'll keep Trump era policies in place that he campaigned against that he said were failures, but, but he won't change them because he thinks that the cost at home uh, in terms of the, the coverage that he gets or the attacks that come from the other side are, are, are too damaging. But it's, it's not worth it uh, to try to make these changes to policies, even though he knows full well that the current policies aren't working and have, in fact, uh, done real harm. Uh, both both to our interests and and to the people in those other countries so it's uh it's it's this old defensive crouch that we we see so often especially from democratic presidents who are, are paranoid about being accused of weakness and who will do anything they can not to appear weak which of course actually makes them seem much weaker uh, than they ever would have if they had just stuck by their guns and tried to get their own agenda enacted Seriously. Um, and apparently no one ever tells them that, you know, it's so well, funny. Yeah. It, it seems, yeah, it seems like they, they don't, they don't think about it through to the next step. They're, they they don't want to be labeled as weak. So they, they end up powering in front of their opponents and then let those people dictate their agenda for them. Absolutely. And right. So, uh, so it's, you know, it's no, it's no wonder we end up with such a, a bunch of lousy policies when so many of the people that know that they don't work still feel compelled to keep those policies in place uh, 
just, just because they're afraid. Yep. Man. Uh, and then, you know, it's really frustrating to me too. The mechanism of sabotage here, Daniel is just, Oh, well, what about Hezbollah or some kind of lazy thing? You just tack extra sentence or paragraph on that says that, well, other issues besides the nuclear issue have to be part of the negotiations. And that then just prevents them from happening at all. That's just it. It's like, you know, putting sugar in the gas tank, whole thing's over. Right. And, and they're, and it, it's pretty clear that that's always what's behind it. The, the desire to add these poison pills to the talks to, to create, uh, or to, to include demands that you already know in advance, the other side won't, can't possibly accept. Uh, and that are they're really irrelevant to the issue at hand. Uh, it's it's a, a way of trying to uh, to derail things before they even get started. And and the, 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 the to the credit of the Obama administration, they understood that when mm -hmm. they negotiated the agreement in the first place, which is why they kept it so narrowly focused on just the nuclear issue, and the, and they refused to let anything else get included because once you start including those other things, then you're you're opening up uh, a huge mess for yourself. Because it's it's hard enough to resolve even one issue with a government that doesn't trust you and that you don't trust, mm -hmm. and and to try to to fix everything all at once, uh, when when even that one issue is extremely difficult, is you're, you're setting yourself up for failure, right. uh, which is of course what what the hardliners uh, always want uh, in these situations. They want to set the bar for success so high that no one can ever get over it, mm -hmm. uh, because they they see their interests, the hardliners' interests, uh, as being tied up in conflict. Anything that makes conflict less likely is uh, therefore uh, undesirable for them. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, the subject matter here is, are they or are they not going to enrich up to weapons grade and put together some atom bombs and possibly threaten Israel with them, supposedly? And you would think that they would just say, man, we really should get a deal and lock that program down the way that they did. And in fact, if you took the JCPOA, it had some sunset provisions and things like that. But if you just took like all other things equal, all lobbying and weird disincentives out of it and just say you had a decent president in there, he might have said, hey, Ayatollah, I really would like if we could retire these sunsets and go ahead and make some of these provisions permanent. And I, you know what? Maybe we could make a deal on missile range. Maybe we could make a deal on support for Hezbollah and you give them maybe only these kinds of weapons, but not those. Maybe we could have actually pursued further diplomacy if they had just stuck with the dang nuclear deal in the first place as the basis of it and actually taken care of their concerns. Because if you follow the logic, Daniel, if the whole thing breaks down, the Ayatollah does what apparently they want him to do, which is move towards a nuke so that they can attack. Well, what do they think is going to happen? They're going to get a perfect regime change and a loyal client state or the next Ayatollah or maybe even still this one is finally going to then make a nuke. And that'll be what within six months or a year or two years of the attack we will end up getting them the nuke that the supposed thing is supposed to stop. So it's hard to take any of this seriously. You know what I mean? They must know what they're doing here. Well, yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I think the, the people that, that talk about uh, using sabotage operations or, or using military attacks to you know, quote-unquote stop Iran's progress uh, know that they're not going to stop it. They know that they're they're going to accelerate it. 
Uh, and that's that's certainly what happened in the case of the Ozarok attack in the eighties against Iraq when they when they attacked that reactor. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that actually convinced the Iraqi government that they really needed to get serious about building nuclear weapons. Excuse me, and that they were uh, that they needed to do it quickly. And so that uh, that military action very directly contributed to a a, a growing danger. Of Iraq gaining nuclear weapons, uh, which you know, of course, then the the post Gulf War uh, settlement and and inspections and all of that uh, ended up stopping. But right, but that, uh, but in terms of the Israeli action, the, the Israelis actually made the problem far worse for themselves and for everybody uh, by by resorting to these sorts of uh, bankrupt tactics. Mm-hmm. And and now they they would now we're talking about doing it on an even larger scale with a much larger program more sophisticated program uh, and it's 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 simply nuts as you say it will it will guarantee or pretty much guarantee proliferation uh while while pretending to prevent it and and th- so this is why I, I i always marvel at people who talk about military options as as somehow being uh, a, a tolerable or, or even useful alternative to the diplomatic path because we can already see how it's going to go down uh, based on what we've seen in the past and and, and based on what we understand about the, the nature of these programs in, in governments like this. Uh, I mean, obviously, the you, you have the, the North Korean example where they went ahead and did acquire nuclear weapons uh, and have essentially bought themselves security by doing so. And the, the Iranians will probably conclude if they if they get attacked they will conclude that the north koreans were right to go the way that they did uh and then will choose to imitate them and and we're at at this point the israelis and the u.s government are giving them every incentive to draw that conclusion when you when it's exactly what you don't want them to conclude yeah and you know i've often compared the um latent nuclear deterrent they have here to having a gun in one pocket and some bullets in the other pocket. They're like, hey, you know, don't make me load my gun, man. We're getting along fine right now. There's no need to escalate toward actually arming up because we're not fighting, are we? We've got a fight going on. That's essentially the posture here. And so, eh, keep an unloaded gun in one pocket and the bullets in the other. That sounds to me like a good place to call the status quo timeout and let's Lock that down in an agreement. You guys keep your enrichment at less than weapons grade, and we will stop attempting to starve your people into submission. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think a deal is still reachable. I think that they could find a way to to get back to to the original compromise that they had. Uh, but but to do that, there there has to be a a really concerted effort to deliver on the benefits for the Iranian side. Well, one of the reasons I think that the Iranian government has been dragging its feet a little bit uh, since the new president came in is that they believe that, and, and they have reason to believe that the U.S. can't be trusted to honor its promises. And if they get sanctions relief as part of a new agreement, uh, how much of that sanctions relief is actually going to be delivered? How much are they actually going to get out of it? Uh, before the agreement is then canceled again by a future administration, and so they they have a legitimate reason to 
be wary of jumping back into an agreement like this when uh, they have been shafted in the past. So, so I, th I think there is still a chance to get that agreement, but but the the onus is on on our side, on the Biden administration, to to prove that to them. And and I think one of the things that they would have to do to actually get the Iranians over the line and and to recommit on their side is by offering them some sanctions relief up front uh, as a as a goodwill gesture, as a way of of showing that they're they're serious about actually delivering on their promises. And uh, you know maybe that would break the the impasse that they're currently in because as of right now, I don't think the the Iranians are going to make to take the leap of faith, so to speak, uh, to get things going again when they see all they see is the u s piling on more and more sanctions on their oil sector. Uh, and, you know they were even adding more in just the last few weeks. And what what message does that send them? It sends them the message that they may as well get used to being under these sanctions indefinitely because mm -hmm. there there's no flexibility on the u s side. Hang on just one second. Hey, y'all, the audiobook of my book, Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism, is finally done. Yes, of course, read by me. It's available at Audible, Amazon, Apple Books, and soon on Google Play and whatever other options there are out there. It's my history of America's war on terrorism from 1979 through today. Give it a listen and see if you agree. It's time to just come home. Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism, the audiobook. Hey guys, I've had a lot of great webmasters over the years, but the team at expanddesigns.com have by far been the most competent and reliable. Harley Abbott and his team have made great sites for the show and the Institute, and they keep them running well, suggesting and making improvements all along. Make a deal with expanddesigns.com for your new business or news site. They will take care of you. Use the promo code SCOTT and save $500. That's expanddesigns.com. Man, I wish I was in school so I could drop out and sign up for Tom Woods' Liberty Classroom instead. Tom has done such a great job on putting together a classical curriculum for everyone from junior high schoolers on up through the postgraduate level. And it's all very reasonably priced. Just make sure you click through from the link in the right margin at scotthorton.org. Tom Woods' Liberty Classroom. Real history. Real economics. Real education. All right, so tell me what you thought of this headline. You must have seen it already today. Saudi Arabia and Iran agree to reestablish ties in talks hosted by China. Right. Uh, yeah, and it's it's an interesting story. The, uh, the the Saudis and the Iranians have been talking for some years now, trying to uh, work back towards resuming normal relations after they broke down in 2016. Uh, the Saudis broke off relations. Uh, there was a... Uh, a riot in Iran uh, that uh, targeted the Saudi embassy in Tehran in response to the execution of a, a Shia cleric uh, in Saudi Arabia by the Saudi government, uh, which, of course, angered a lot of people in Iran, uh, especially because uh, the, the execution was uh, for, for obvious reasons of, of persecution and, and to, to suppress Shiites in Saudi Arabia. Uh, and that that's where the the breakdown started, and they've the, the Saudi government eventually realized that their policy of, of stoking animosity and hostility towards Iran wasn't having any benefits for them. 
uh, and um, gradually I started moving towards uh, repairing these relations. And so you had talks in Iraq, you had talks facilitated by Oman, I think. Uh, and then the Chinese got in on it as well, uh, and they're the ones that posted these latest negotiations that took place this week. And they they finally hammered out this uh, new normalization agreement, which is just a commitment to reopen their embassies and and have normal relations like they had before the breakdown. So it's not you know it's not a, one of these great diplomatic achievements. It's it's sort of the bare minimum of normal relations. Uh, but they hadn't had that for seven years, and and now they will have it again. And so I think that's that's good news in terms of regional stability. It's good news uh, for uh, possibly for Yemen uh, if this then leads to more flexibility from the Saudis and the Iranians on that front as well. Uh, and it it should, if the U.S. handles it correctly, it should also provide an opening for us to try to resume our own negotiations with Iran. Because I think this shows that the Iranian government is open to uh, to some compromise. They are open to talks, uh, provided that they're dealing with people that they can actually deal with uh and that are willing to deal with them so uh all, all around I, I think it's a good development i think the, the chinese role here is probably going to be weaponized by people who don't like china uh, to try to make it into something dangerous or scary uh to, to make people worried about it but i'm i'm not concerned about that at all i think uh if, if the chinese are able to facilitate something like this and uh, and our government isn't because we're so locked into these rivalries. That should tell us something about the the folly of our current position, uh, and and uh, the folly of of our decision not to have normal relations with Iran for all these decades. Uh, when China can act as a mediator and actually achieve something useful by having good relations with both countries, that's that's the sort of relationship that the U.S. should be aspiring to have with both countries. Uh, not a, not a not one where we play favorites, not one where we uh, arm anyone to the teeth, but where we have a, a cordial, cordial working relationship. And yep. as of right now, of course, we have no relationship with Iran, and we have a far too close relationship with the Saudis. And so we we should strive to to uh, rebalance that. Man, I, I don't know. You're such a moderate and conservative type of a personality. I mean, to me, this is beyond the worst embarrassment. This embarrassment. <laughs> This is an absolute disgrace. I mean, United States of America has been helping Saudi explode babies to death in Yemen for seven years straight. Well, they, they finally stopped for the last year, more or less. But before that, for seven years straight and killed hundreds of thousands of people, just as the Obama government told um, the New York Times to placate the Saudis because they were doing the Iran deal. Then Trump tears up the Iran deal, keeps the genocide kills all these people. So it's not just that obviously America's role in the world should be going around hosting peace conferences and trying to prevent violence from breaking out, not making promises, but hosting others to work out their differences at least, you know, and instead we got the chai comms doing it when we're on the side of the worst, most belligerent, bloody genocidal faction in all of this. And the Saudis even backed the Sunni insurgency against our guys in Iraq War II when W. Bush had them on the side of the Shiites. And these guys are a menace. And I just don't know 
you know, as the kids say these days, Daniel, cringe, right? Like it's the cringiest thing in the whole damn world that Beijing is coming in and doing what the United States of America should be all about in the first place and none of the rest of this instead, you know? Well, right. I mean, we, that's why I mean, we ought to be getting out of the, the arrangement that we have with the Saudis. Uh, we should have been doing that years ago, long before uh, the, the opening for others to come in and, and do this sort of mediating work uh, presented itself. But, but I, you know, if, if this sort of uh, embarrassment, if, you want to, if people want to think about it as an embarrassment, if this embarrassment is what it takes to, to wake us up to the, the stupidity and the, the cruelties of our policies in the Middle East, then, then maybe that can have a, a good effect in the end. Uh, we you know, we should have realized a long time ago uh, that our government shouldn't be uh, so deeply involved with the Saudis as it has been. Uh, but but maybe this will finally force us to, to realize that that you know they're they're going to do whatever they're going to do. We don't have uh, a hold on them. That despite all of the military assistance, all of the enabling, all of the coddling and protection that we provided them. Uh, they're they're not going to behave in the way that Washington wants them to necessarily. Uh, so so just cut them off. Stop stop with the indulgence and and uh, in the enabling behavior that has implicated the U.S. in so many terrible crimes. Uh, and so that's that's why I think we need to, to disentangle ourselves from them and and get back to having more normal. Uh, relations with all states in the region, uh, which which would preclude us from from taking sides as the way we have done. Hmm. Uh, tell me, Daniel, what did you think of the vote in the House on the War Powers Resolution on Syria the oh, yeah. other day? Yeah, well, of course, it was a disappointing result. Uh, we we saw, I think, about three quarters of the House voting against uh, the resolution. Uh, Slightly more Republicans voting against it than Democrats, but you had it was it was a, a bipartisan uh, showing uh, in, in the the rejectionist camp, uh, and it's it's a, a shame because the the mission in Syria, the the deployment in Syria that we have right now, is the most clear cut example of, or well, one of the most clear cut examples of an illegal war currently going on in the world. Uh, one that has not been authorized by Congress, that has no international mandate, has absolutely no justification whatsoever. Uh, and so it should be a layup uh, for a War Powers Resolution Challenge. It's the, it's exactly the kind of thing that War Powers Resolution was created to oppose, where the president sends troops into a war zone uh, on his own without congressional approval and keeps them there for years on end. While they come under fire and while they engage with other forces, uh, including groups that have absolutely nothing to do with threats to the United States, uh, you know, uh, pro pro government forces aligned with uh, the Syrian government, Iranian-backed militias, uh, Russian mercenaries, you know, none of these people has anything to do with our national security, uh, and our people have no business being there. And so it's it is disappointing to see that such a huge uh, block in the House simply doesn't care about that and doesn't care about their constitutional responsibilities. Um, it's and I 
I guess it's not really that surprising that, that so many of them have uh, refused to do their duty. Uh, since we you know, we know members of Congress are are famously allergic to taking responsibility for these sorts of policies, but it's uh, it is still discouraging to see how few people there were uh, in favor of what what really should have been a, a slam dunk. Uh, both on the constitutional side and on the policy side to get those troops out. Yeah. Um, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm sorry to see it. And, and I would think, you know, it's, it's, it is a bit strange that there was so much more support for getting us out of the business of backing the war in Yemen. Uh, and of course it was absolutely right to, to do that, to try to, to end our involvement. Uh, but here, where we actually have troops on the ground, we have troops occupying foreign territory in violation of uh, international law and, and without congressional authorization, uh, this, for some reason, does not excite the same outrage. It does not seem to generate the same opposition as backing for the Saudis did. And so it's it's a little curious to me that that, uh, that same coalition that has been fighting to get us out of the war in Yemen uh, did not show up for this vote. And I, it's, it would be interesting to, to dig into why that is. Well, I mean, part of it was we just didn't have time to build up a movement at all, right? We, you know, Gates announced the thing and then later that week they voted on it. So there had been a thing sure. before where um, I talked with Eric Sperling from Just Foreign Policy and he talked about how they... It wasn't a war powers resolution. They were trying to get an amendment in the um, National Defense Authorization Act and that they had put together quite a coalition of votes there. I think they did even better this time on short notice. So, um, But, you know, also in Yemen, you're talking, well, I mean, the worst of the Syrian war ended in at the end of 2017, beginning of 2018, you know. But the Yemen war was still going on up until a year ago. And you had a situation where, you know, this total blockade on their seaports and their airports and starvation and babies dying of cholera and all this stuff in a way that Syria was really bad. And Obama sent his legions of suicide bombers and everything. But it, it wasn't quite the same dynamic there where people are starving to death and stuff like the way it was in Yemen. It's the way it still is in Yemen. Right. Well, that, yeah, I, I think that that could explain part of it. There there. There was and is a a dire humanitarian crisis in Yemen, uh, and and that. Oh, which been, by the way, not that I'm telling you anything you don't know. For people who don't know, you know, uh, Daniel, you've been great on Yemen. It's, it's good or better than anyone this whole time. So, if, well, for people who aren't nice, familiar yeah, with that, I, I would, yeah, I mean, I, I wish it had made more of a difference, but, um, yeah, but th thanks. Um, and so, yeah, of course, there there has been a dire humanitarian crisis in Yemen uh, for all uh, for now coming up on eight years. Uh, and and that crisis has been severely exacerbated and, and really driven by the Saudi coalition intervention uh, and and the the policies that they have instituted uh, in pursuit of that war, uh, both both in terms of the, the blockade, as you say, and, and also the the economic policies that they've instituted through the uh, the government that they prop up. So it's uh, so I, I can see how the, the humanitarian crisis would be. Uh, would spur many people to action, whereas in, in the, the Syrian case, it's not. Uh, maybe there's not the same feeling of urgency in the, in the Syrian case as there is in Yemen. 
but I but I think the the legal case for getting the troops out is is even more airtight right. yeah, in the Syrian case. And so if if we're talking about it primarily in terms of, of war powers, more than than just in terms of the policy, uh, the, the the Syria one is the one that you would go to where you, you have the the strongest argument, I think, because Congress never debated and never voted on sending these troops in. It still hasn't yeah. all this time later. And, and they've now been there uh, in one capacity or another for, for coming up. It'll be, it'll be nine years, I think. Right. This year. Yeah. Uh, it's funny and, too, because so they act like in that debate, they act like we've always been there and we always will be. And of course, America occupies Syria. But I remember a time when America did not occupy Syria and invading and occupying Syria would have been a really big deal. And then staying forever, like it's South Korea and all of this, like really at the, when the government in Damascus says, beat it, please. And when, you know, as everybody knows, it was America and our allies that built the ISIS caliphate that they had to go there to destroy. But even then, Barack Obama had to swear no boots on the ground. We're only going to use air power in Syria. We're going to leave it up to, you know, the Kurds. And even, I guess he was implying eventually Assad to reestablish his monopoly on force in that country. No boots on the ground. And then broke that promise but that was how he had to make the promise in order to extend Iraq War III into Syria in the first place was, look, Daniel, we would never put boots on the ground there. Everybody knows that. That would be crazy, right? Now, here we are, as you say, nine years later almost, and the idea is that we would remove our boots from the ground there? Are you insane? Huh? Don't you know we have to—they literally, one of the congressmen, one of the Republicans said this, we have to fight them over there so that we don't have to fight them here. Right, and and of course it's it's useful that they they don't ever really have to specify who the the them is in that uh, in that argument. Yeah, exactly. Because America uh, backs all the terrorists in the Idlib province right now. The Al Qaeda danger to the world. Us and our Turkish friends there. Us being the U.S. government, not me. But you know what I mean. Right, and well, and and a lot of the the people that are that, that our troops are coming in contact with in Syria uh, have are, are are not involved in any of that. Right? I mean you. You have, when you have these these drone attacks or, or rocket attacks on U.S. bases in Syria, it's it's usually coming from people that are there to fight on the side of the Syrian government, uh, and and so even the the fig leaf excuse that they're there in some sort of anti-terrorist capacity uh, doesn't actually tell you what they're really doing there. It doesn't. It doesn't. It's not a. a an accurate or, or honest assessment of, of why they're still there. Uh, basically, they're there. I mean, as far as I can tell, the the guys, especially the guys at Tanf, were just there to serve as target practice until we will eventually get some sort of shooting war with the Iranians going. I, mean, I don't really understand what anyone hopes. I mean, beyond that, I don't know what anyone's hoping to accomplish. Uh, it seems like it's it's just a a deployment for its own sake at this point. Um, and so the, the, the logic of keeping them there is, is bizarre uh, in my mind. I, I don't, I really don't know what people could be thinking, uh, unless it is just to, to keep creating pretext for more conflicts, uh, down the road. I, I don't know what else it could be for. 
Well, I've heard them rationalize, Daniel, that, well, by depriving them of their oil money, we make their reconstruction harder and we just make, uh, you know, times tougher for them. And sometimes they say, um, you know, even though the cause for this was Assad's alliance with Iran, now they've made, uh, you know, Syria more dependent on Iran than ever before. And they go, oh, yeah, but see, that's what's good about it is because this is a drain on Iran's economy that they have to support their Syrian friends. And so the negative effect, the opposite effect of what they were going for is now the rationalization that it's working. Right. Well, and, and you have this paired up with, of course, a horrendous sanctions policy uh, that, that punishes people in Syria and in the government controlled areas uh, and, and does block their ability to rebuild and their ability to recover from the war. Uh, and, and it's quite deliberate to make uh, those parts of Syria as as unlivable as possible by threatening anybody that does business with them with secondary sanctions. Um, that's uh, it, it's another one of these maximum pressure uh, economic wars, uh, and and the victims of those wars uh, are the people that uh, the you know, the ordinary people that live in that country. Uh, the the people in the government and their cronies will do just fine, and they have been doing just fine this whole time. And that's the way it always goes with these things, and so I know even even if we think of it in, in terms of, of being a punitive policy, the the people being punished by that policy are are not the the war criminals or the the people at uh, the top. It's always the people uh, that are most vulnerable and, and weakest uh, that get it in the neck. Yep. Absolutely. All right. Well, listen, I've kept you long enough. I'll let you go about your Friday afternoon, but I sure do appreciate your time again on the show, Daniel. Been great. Uh, yeah, uh, my pleasure, Scott. Thanks for having me on. All right, you guys, that is Daniel Larison. He's at Responsible Statecraft and he's at Substack. His uh, blog there is called Unomia. I think I said that right. The Scott Horton Show, Anti-War Radio, can be heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. APSradio.com, antiwar.com, scotthorton.org, and libertarianinstitute.org.